Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. My name is Paul Reismandel. Hello, everybody. Eric Klein here. I love radio. I love sound. And uh, joining us is somebody else, I think, who loves radio and sound, but he loves media. His name is <laughs> Professor Christopher Terry, and he comes to us from the University of Minnesota, where he is a professor of media law. Welcome, Chris. Always great to be here, guys. So we're here. Professor Christopher Terry loves uh, the FCC. <laughs> What, do you love the FCC? Do we, can we put you on the spot or, or would that I, be? I love that the FCC keeps me employed. There we go. That that that's that's uh, I, I, I make sense there. And that's because you are an FCC watcher. Um, you pay close attention to what goes on at the Federal Communications Commission here in these United States of America. And we're here uh, in December of 2018 to look back at the year that was, but really take take a survey of what's important what is developed this year, and what those of us who care about not just radio, but about communications freedom, really, yeah. what we should be thinking about, paying attention to, and acting on. And so uh, to dive right in here, uh, there was a lot of action about network neutrality, about open internet standards here in in 2018. And, and the uh, too long didn't read version is that the Ajit Pai... FCC led FCC overturned the open internet rules that had been previously put in place by the previous administration, uh, the FCC under Tom Wheeler, who is who was an appointee of President Obama. So this would, in theory, allow the companies that 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 control our internet because they're the ones who provide us with the service. We pay them; they give us the internet. Uh, th- these companies could be allowed under the new rules to. To, 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 to limit what the internet is. For, for any of us, right. I think that's the great shortcut. So, so, so Chris, this isn't, no one's letting this stand, right? Uh, no one's sitting back and letting this happen uh, uncontested. So what is the status right now? Yeah, <laughs> what is going on right now? In Where's our internet? In these dark times where the, where, where the front page of uh, most newspapers uh, do not discuss network neutrality. Well, you'll need to take a seat back here to uh, to do this correctly. Um, in 2011, the FCC lost a case in court um, in Verizon v. FCC. Mm-hmm. Case starts in 2011 and is concluded in 2014. This was the FCC's second attempt to pass net neutrality, and in that in that case, in the decision, the court told the FCC for the second time it didn't have the authority to put net neutrality rules on the book. But what was different about the Verizon decision is that it said that the FCC didn't have the authority to put net neutrality rules on the book the way it was trying to do it. And then Christopher tw- Terry, can you can you help us understand that? I mean, because we, we started off today's conversation by talking about the FCC uh, wanting this and the FCC wanting that, but we're talking about um, different leadership at the FCC in 2011. So, so what what did the FCC want then in this well, it, court case? It wanted to stabilize a set of rules. And after losing the Verizon decision, the agency under Tom Wheeler, Hemden and Hawd, and we've been through the uh, the process which evolved. Tom Wheeler 20- would be Obama's head of the FCC. Yes, one of Obama's head of the FCC. Second. And in 2015, the FCC released uh, new net neutrality rules, which reclassified broadband 
internet under Title II, essentially treating it as a telephone line and giving it common carrier utility status. Mm-hmm. That rule was pretty controversial in some quarters and well-respected in others, but it was a pretty significant move because the FCC did something it doesn't do very often. It took direction from the court to essentially achieve the result that it wanted. So basically you have an appeals court telling the FCC, if you want to have open internet regulations, this is how you do it. They gave them more or less an instruction manual and the Tom Wheeler FCC followed the instruction manual. Yeah, kicking and screaming, they followed it, but they <laughs> yes. nonetheless, they followed it. Donald Trump is elected in 2016. Ajit Pai moves from the sort of loudmouthed commissioner who's always against everything to the chair position. And in 2017, the agency then repeals the Title II order and implements it with something Orwellian named called the Open Internet Order. So that's sort of the backdrop for what happened. In fact, as we record this, it was a year ago today Mm. that the commission voted on that decision. There's a lot of discussion of net neutrality today, which is kind of funny because not many people have been talking about it for a little while now. All right. Against that backdrop is what happened this year. When the FCC passed the rules in 2015, a group of ISPs, Internet Service Providers, challenged the rules as they had done a couple times before. But this time they lost, and that case was the U.S. Telecom case. So a year ago, actually November a year ago, the FCC quietly went to court to try to keep that case from going to the U.S. Supreme Court. They so didn't a case want the that US. the FCC won <laughs> under a pre, uh, basically defending the open internet rules of the Obama era FCC. Right. Now the uh, uh, Trump era FCC wants to kind of bury that win. Well, they they don't want the Supreme Court to have a shot at that case, so mm-hmm. they actually asked for a series of eight delays to keep that case from going to the Supreme Court. Uh, more than a year of delay in real terms. Now, while that was happening, the FCC in 2017 passed this new open Internet order, which is now in court in D.C. Circuit Court. And we're going to have a pretty good idea of what that looks like uh, right after Christmas. The uh, filing deadline for a bunch of really important procedural stuff is January 2nd. But the FCC found itself earlier this year with a challenge at the Supreme Court of a rule that had already been upheld and a challenge in the D.C. Circuit Court of a rule that the FCC had passed but has not yet been tested. That's the Mozilla case, which 22 states and a variety of other edge providers have signed on to. It's going to be a very significant case. And, when it and goes Mozilla to are the people who make the Firefox browser. Right. And it's actually a nonprofit um, that makes that just a so people know what Mozilla means, and they, so and that company took up sort of took up the banner of of fighting for a free and open internet uh, against there's, this particular. There's lots FCC. of people involved. They just happen to be the first ones to file, so they're the lead plaintiff. But good, they're going to marketing. be associated with the case. Yeah, it's it's brilliant in a lot of ways. Okay, but against that backdrop, while the the commission was wrestling with these two cases over two different sets of rules in court at the same time, the. Uh, the Supreme Court 
finally made a decision on whether or not to take the U.S. telecom case from the 2015 rules. And although Ajit Pai, Brendan Carr, and Commissioner uh, O'Reilly suggested that the rules from 2015 were patently illegal, the D.C. Circuit Court had ruled twice that they were not, and the Supreme Court decided not to review the case after more than a year of delay, which means that the courts upheld the 2015 rules that Ajit Pai's agency has worked very hard to get rid of in the meantime. So so basically, so, uh, you know, because there's a lot of moving parts here, I'm going to constantly kind of stop and, and yeah. make sure we understand the score at this point in the game. And we're talking, you're talking about like, it's so funny. It's like, I wanted to call it like the great game. I mean, at least yeah. it's Radio Survivor's great game of... Uh, where will the policies that 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 uh, that that govern the functioning of our web industry? It's, like, it's like NFC, Where will it end up? It's like an NFC Championship game, and we're into three hours of overtime. <laughs> this is where we are. So the score here is that the the open internet rules that really establish a hard and fast net neutrality that were passed in 2015 by the Tom Wheeler led Obama era FCC were challenged by were challenged in court by uh, a set of plaintiffs, ISPs, internet service providers led by U.S. Telecom. Um, the D.C. Circuit Court was it the D.C. Circuit that that, yes. that ruled on it? The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that that the rules are legal. Said that net neutrality is legal and constitutional. Twice. Twice. It has been challenged from that to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said they will not hear the case, which means when the Supreme Court doesn't hear the case that the rules stand, except <laughs> they stand, except that the FCC has now un- undone them. And right. So we have we have this precedent, which basically, if I understand correctly, the FCC net neutrality rules, which the Republicans on the current FCC say are illegal, and unconstitutional, have been held up as constitutional by the first uh, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, the Supreme twice. Court twice. <laughs> The DC, and then the Supreme Court said, well, we won't hear this, meaning they find no, no, no there's nothing there to, to review. And so they are actually constitutional. And, and before we get into more of this back and forth, I just want to sort of plant a flag for the listeners to, to, to say what the stakes are. And it's that with with the with the open Internet that's being fought for and um, seems to be both losing and winning, it's hard to know. Where we stand, right? That's what we're talking about today on Radio Survivor. But the point is, is that, you know, a radio station that you listen to online pays no more for the privilege to stream to you than uh, the extremely rich uh, corporations. Yeah, for the same amount of bandwidth. Netflix, Amazon Prime, you know, your favorite local radio station. They're not paying your Comcast provider or your your local provider anything more. Yeah, and... and, uh, there's a certain business model that your telecoms may be itching for where they can actually extract a lot more profit from certain streamers. And that's that's sort of for what instance, the stakes yeah, are. Yeah, that's part of the stakes there. So so we have this now situation, Chris, uh, where on the one hand, we have a set of rules from 2015 defending a network neutrality that are been ruled constitutional twice. And then we have this other set of new rules that undid most of that passed in 2017, about a year ago, by the current Republican-led FCC that are being challenged in court uh, pretty soon here. Right. Early next year, the Mozilla case, which combines 
several cases, including the challenges by 22 state attorneys. Several of the edge providers have signed on to that case. It's going to be a significant case. Part of that case is whether or not the FCC acted arbitrarily and capriciously when it handed down the rules in 2017. Of course, part of that discussion involves the FCC's ignoring the 22 million public comments that were submitted into the record, claiming that they couldn't make sense of them. And there's been at least one state attorney general who's being who's investigating that because it looks like there was a significant amount of identity fraud involved in that. But regardless of whether or not the identity fraud occurred, the FCC's decision, the majority decision in 2017, the pie led decision, ignored a volume of comments that is simply unprecedented in FCC history. And these are comments from the general public. Say, right. please don't Which, muck up my internet. And I, well, about saying, 98.5%, depending on how you count them, about 98.5% of them supported retaining the Title II rules. And is it true that this identity fraud, uh, that the, that's the other 2%, that the, the people who may have had their, their real names stolen in order to make comments in favor of the internet service providers changing the rules? Well, we, we don't know that yet, but Commissioner Rosenworth all this week was already harping on the majority for not complying with that. Pi's FCC voted this week to ignore a couple of open records related requests, a FOIA and two open records requests uh, related to the comments and the submissions. They just decided not to go with that. They're going to try and fight that out in court. Hmm. So there's some shenanigans there that we haven't quite seen yet um, that the agency is aware of. Remember that Pi claimed during the comment submission process that the FCC had been uh, a victim of a denial of service attack. And because, that turned out yeah, not true. He basically was uh, their website got busy because so many people cared about this issue, which definitely resembles a DDoS because that's how they work you know you use a website so much that it can't handle the traffic well in this case the traffic uh, was entirely uh, legitimate individuals who cared there was some suggestion that that was actually what had occurred and that the fcc had misinterpreted it but in september maybe october there was some discussion that there wasn't even any evidence that that had occurred (laughs) at some level so blowing smoke um it's well it's it's complicated for Pi. He's made a lot of very impassioned arguments that say that the net neutrality rules passed by Wheeler's commission were unconstitutional. And he was very aggravated when the so when a case goes through the D.C. circuit, it goes to a, a primary panel. That's three judges. Depending on how it comes out, it can be appealed to the full circuit. That's all of the judges on the circuit. So it's a second it's an intermediate level appeal. And they didn't take the case, believing that the original decision was correct. And then when the Supreme Court didn't take the case, it entirely undermined essentially the largest premise that Pi had relied on, that the rule was just simply unconstitutional without and outside of the FCC's jurisdiction. And this is not, you know, this is not the most liberal Supreme Court out there. The D.C. Circuit not, Court is not the most liberal circuit in the United States appeals court system. No, not even close. And that is coupled with the other thing that busted out very recently. P- 
part of Pi's argument against Title II wasn't just that it was unconstitutional or outside of the agency's jurisdiction. His argument was very competition-era regulation-based in that Title II had reduced um, investment in broadband infrastructure. And they they would scream this from any mountaintop they could stand on, any TV station that would interview them, any magazine that would talk to them. And there, in the past 10 days, there's been evidence that that wasn't true either. <laughs> so the entire 2017 order looks to be have, have been sold to us on a bill of goods. Now, I disagreed with the order in practice, but in administrative law, where the FCC does its business, there's a lot of procedures to protect against this kind of action, one that's not supported empirically and one that is made in contravention to sections of the APA. And it looks like the FCC batted for the cycle on hitting all of the bad things that it could have hit in the, in the process to rush through that 2017 order. My expectation is, is that the D.C. Circuit will find it relatively narrow decision in Mozilla that the FCC acted arbitrarily and capriciously and the agency will be forced to live with the 2015 rules until it can go through the entire process again, which given the attention it got this last time, I think is far more likely to generate uh, a result that's not as uh, friendly to the pie uh, regime at the FCC, if you will. And that voice you just heard is Professor Christopher Terry. He's a professor of media law at the University of Minnesota. This is Radio Survivor. My name is Paul Reesmanel. With me is Eric Klein. And we're talking about what has gone on with the Federal Communications Commission this year, the year of 2018, as we wrap up here in December, looking at issues that are really important to our ability to communicate freely, whether it's internet, whether it's broadcast, radio, and on. And uh, Chris has been our go-to person for quite some time. We're very grateful to have him available to us and to take our calls when we need some help understanding. Yeah, I always want to I always want to put on a plug every time we have Professor Christopher Terry on just for every other episode of the Radio Survivor <laughs> podcast where we've had Christopher Terry on. I think if there are any listeners out there who uh, who want to learn more about uh, FCC policy, you, you could do worse, especially if if you're uh, if you like listening a little bit more than you like reading. You could do a lot worse than listening to the past episodes of Radio Survivor where we've talked to Professor Christopher Terry to sort of just get a good overview of of where the FCC is uh, these days. Yeah, go to Radio the, the Survivor. Last few years. Go to radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. This is episode number one seventy two, and we'll have a list. And I think I can put together a playlist with our current host. Yeah, and I so you could just click play and, and get and get and get massive amounts of information. And, and again, why that matters? It's so interesting because the FCC. It's not like FCC rules uh, uh, flip a switch and then the media landscape just changes overnight. But these policies that are set there in D.C. really do have a massive impact on the ground in local communities. It just takes time. And, and it is, a, and, and as Chris has very well laid out in, in, in the first quarter of the program here, you know, it, there is a process to it. Yeah. It is not, it is not, you know, and as much as that people, I think, imagine it happening in smoke-filled rooms, and, and clearly some of this does get brokered that way. Well, it's there's, complicated. There's a public process. The smoke is now metaphorical instead of literal. It, Maybe there's a lot. Well, I mean, you have to be a lawyer. You have to be yeah, right. a professor of media law to sort of unravel the threads of what's going on, and and that's that that is just as good as a closed door sometimes. Put that in your Reese's mug and drink <laughs> it. Um. So so Chris, 
as part of this this year uh, around network neutrality, around internet freedom, uh, there was some movement on the part of states to pass their own uh, laws uh, in order to help protect network neutrality, at least within their, their bounds. And, and the largest state to do this was California, which of course, you know, being an, being the largest state by population, having enormous economic power in the U S that, that turned a lot of heads. Uh, What's going on with that? Can California have a more open internet than the rest of the United States? Could that even work? Well, it would be hard to implement that in any way that would actually work in practice. But here's what's going on. As the FCC was going to court in the where the court was reviewing whether or not to grant uh, cert to review the U.S. telecom case, California and the FCC sort of agreed to wait on the legal battle that will ensue Um over California's rules. Now, why does that matter? The FCC said in 2017 that it doesn't have the authority to enforce net neutrality. That was its official position. But it also, at the same time it said that, said it had the ability to exempt or preempt from enforcement state laws dealing with net neutrality. So that's a a related but separate issue. For right now, as I understand it, California and the FCC are still in an agree to hold off position. And I would assume when the Mozilla case goes to court, we'll see some action one way or the other. The FCC's idea that it can both not have the authority to rule on net neutrality and at the same time keep anybody else from doing so, that doesn't hold water in administrative law, even in the faintest of terms. It would have to be explicitly said like that from Congress. And even then, I think the states would have a significant legal challenge. It's interesting Part- that folks who normally are, are yelling states' rights, uh, they have a, they're a little selective when it comes to some things. Yeah, that's that's certainly part of it. Um, part of the Mozilla case, though, that really is really a big deal is the 22 states' attorney generals who signed on to challenge the FCC. That's not something that happens all that often. Um I never, <laughs> for the most part, and um, you know, not quite never, maybe, but but close to never. And what you have there is a block of states that say to the FCC, "Okay, we want federal control of this, but if you're not going to give it to us, we want the right to implement it inside of the state." And we can talk about cable head ends and how ISP interconnects work for a very long time without ever actually explaining anything. But in practical terms, it would be hard for a single state to have a net neutrality rule that didn't, in practical terms, apply to everybody else. It's not impossible, but yeah, I I think I think that the uh, a great way to understand it in a parallel sort of situation is how uh, California clean air regulations, especially around automobiles, eventually sort of filter out to become the clean look like the clean air regulations becomes the the battleground for the. For the national policy is whether or not California can get because its way. Because you just can't you know, make a different model of car for California. It, uh, it becomes a it becomes a logistical nightmare. It occurs to me, you know, Professor Christopher Terry, that um, when you're talking about these 22 states attorneys general uh, signing on to to fight, essentially to fight uh, the big telecoms that. Uh, we here in in uh, at Radio Survivor who care about community radio and community media, we find ourselves on the sides of some other pretty powerful 
economic interests. It's not just, you know, uh, it's not just the telecoms versus uh, people who like listening to radio streams cheaply. There's also some big companies that have an interest in uh, who also support network neutrality. Yeah, who 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 well, do better when when the when the, when the networks are free. The uh, the the long and the short of what you're saying is this: net neutrality has become portrayed as a left and right issue that Democrats in Congress want to pass the CRA, Republicans in Congress are opposed to it. It's that's just one of those things that's just oversimplified in life. Net neutrality as a concept starts in Michael Powell's FCC. Michael Powell was no, no lefty, right? I mean, he was he, but he saw this as an economic thing. He saw the idea that companies that don't have internet service providers that are friendly to them or are competing with internet service providers, they needed some way to get their content to consumers without it being interfered with. So it's always been a pro-economic position, but it it's expanded to include sort of a pro-free speech option as well. And that's important, right? It's not that it's, it's not that it's one thing or the other. It's a lot of things. And you're absolutely right. Companies like Google that don't have much of their own internet infrastructure in terms of physical inter- infrastructure, they're on the hook for this, right? There's a reason Mozilla wanted to jump in front of this. They're a company that doesn't provide internet service. They're a company that relies on internet service providers for people to use their products. And so you do get a sort of a weird dichotomy. Groups like Facebook, right? Facebook sort of in the, in the doghouse in many ways. But Facebook relies on people having neutral internet access so that people use Facebook. And, yeah. you know, if Comcast decided – if you have Comcast, your cable provider, and they decide they don't like Facebook anymore, without net neutrality, they can make it go away. Or, now, they or at really, least they could ask uh, for some rent to be paid for oh, the use of the stream. Well, we certainly know that that's uh, largely what the plan is. Verizon said as much during the Verizon case. They said the only thing that's kept them from doing this so far is that they were afraid of how the rules would ultimately shake out. But in the span of time between the Verizon decision and the release of the 2015 rules, Comcast, Verizon, and AT&T all did some rent-seeking with Netflix because Netflix uses up so much bandwidth. Right. And they had throttled Netflix down to essentially a unusable level, and Netflix eventually had to come around and agree to a highway tax. Now that got resolved by the 2015 rules, but while there were no rules in place, that kind of behavior was certainly seen, despite any rhetoric to the opposite. Yeah, and I'm glad uh, I'm glad yeah. you brought up the Netflix example because part of what's really uh, interesting about watching this issue of the open internet and how the FCC policy. Uh, has gone back and forth about it for so many years now, is that um, there's a risk of being like a chicken little uh, when when news breaks that the FCC is changing the rules and then uh, things don't change that much. They don't, they're not so bad uh, yet. And so it's, it's really interesting to think about how uh, policy changes at the Federal Communications Commission, uh, they might not go into effect right away in our phones, in our hands, but... Uh, it's it, slow. It's a bit. It's a bit like uh, it's turning possible. up the heat on on right. the lizard. It is yeah. possible that a decade or less. I mean, in the next decade, the internet could function radically different than it did uh, when it first started in the late '90s, and and these changes would come about because of the policy changes that that are that are adopted at the Federal Communications Commission. 
Well, I hate to use it as a seg, but I'll use it as an example of what you're talking about. Um, when the Telecommunications Act was passed implementing new media ownership rules, most of the consolidation didn't start until 1998. It so took that, a couple of years, years. Yeah. before the rules were on the books, but it took almost two years for that process to start. And it wasn't until late 1999 or early 2000 where we really started to see the big mergers. Right happening in radio which uh, tune into uh, previous episodes of radio survivor to hear about how the 1996 telecommunications act uh ruined radio in our opinion ruined uh, commercial radio right may it just made it less fun to listen to less useful to the audiences that depended upon it and sort of uh and led the industry into bankruptcy yeah, and changed a generation of of uh how you know for how radio sounds to the millennials is a radically different thing than how it sounded to, to, to baby boomers or Gen Xers when they were young. So let's take you up on, on that segue there, uh, Christopher Terry, about media ownership, because one of the things that's under the FCC's purview is the ownership of media. While the 1996 Telecom Act was a, a federal law signed into law by Bill Clinton, yeah, passed Bill by Clinton, Congress, passed by Congress and gave particular uh, marching orders to the FCC, telling it that here are the new limits uh, because of that, that act that was uh, signed into law 22 some years ago. Uh, every so often, the FCC has to look at ownership rules and judge them against the marketplace such as it is. And once again, it's on the FCC docket. So do we have to be looking over our shoulder right now? What's what's going to happen here? Okay, so here's what happened uh, this past week. Um, the so commission the week of the week of, of like December 2nd, right? Uh, December 3rd. Uh, well, it actually happened Wednesday of this week. Oh, okay. Uh, so it, it, yeah. So it, it happened the, very recently. Uh, that would be December the 12th. 12th. Yeah. Okay. The FCC had its monthly meeting in December. That's the last one of 2018. Under an obscure provision of the Telecommunications Act, the FCC has to review its media ownership rules in the interest of competition. This would be section 202H of the Telecommunications Act. It's, uh, a uh, short paragraph in there that has caused the FCC an unimaginable number of headaches over the last uh, generation. Um, but what that rule requires is that the FCC on a periodic basis review its rules. And in 2018, that was one of the years where they had to do that. So they waited until literally the last minute to launch this proceeding. What this proceeding is supposed to do is take in evidence, public comment, and some discussion about whether or not the existing media rules, those are the rules from the 1996 Telecommunication Act, need to be revised to promote competition. Um, now, there's a lot of discussion because of the Sinclair merger, which fizzled out earlier this year about the 39% television audience cap. That's the rule that allows you to own as many television stations as you can until you reach 39% of the national audience. Wow. Um, that rule was actually a 35% rule in the Tele Telecommunications Act. It was expanded by Congress to 39% uh, to incorporate some Fox O&Os way back in like 2003. But... Ultimately, the rules haven't changed much since the 1996 Telecommunications Act until this week. 
the FCC is proposing a radical shift in several rules, notably the local radio ownership rule among them, that would release another round of consolidation on the scale of the one we saw in the late 90s. And if the rules as proposed, so the FCC released a notice of proposed rulemaking, it has some ideas for the rules the FCC is considering. One of those rules would remove the cap at the local level. So radio currently has a limit in the largest radio markets. You can have up to eight stations owned by the same people. No limit on the number of stations you can own in total across the nation. Okay. The new rule that the FCC is hawking as it's, uh, and I've only seen the draft order. The final order hasn't been released yet, but in the draft order, they're proposing moving that from a straight cap of eight to a percentage of stations in the top 75 markets. But in the any market below number 75, so MSA 75, <laughs> at MSA 76, you can own as many stations as you want at the local level. So what I'm hearing you say, uh, Professor Christopher Terry, that there's sort of accounting tricks to allow uh, – certain owners to, to grow bigger, which in effect, I mean, it's funny because it almost like I shrug, like who cares if they get bigger now, right? But what we're talking about, what's at stake is that say 35 years ago when, when uh, ownership of the media was more diverse at the local level, uh, you know, you could have, there's just more local content. There was more opportunities for people. I watched a a, a broadcast from 35 years ago of one of my local television stations, a station that I wouldn't watch at all these days. And 35 years ago, they had this local panel discussion where members of the community were invited on to this network affiliate to uh, to to talk about local issues, which almost, it just blew my mind to see that in the 80s that this was possible, that community leaders could get on the news to discuss for, for half an hour uh you know, policy ideas. It seemed, it seemed insane because it's definitely, (laughs) yeah, it's not something that is possible now. And it's, it's entirely because there just aren't as many professional people at that, at these stations to, to mount this kind of project. It, it takes jobs to create content, especially good stuff. Well, that's certainly true. But what we're looking at here is the FCC essentially trying to do away with the remaining rules that are still on the books. So in addition to the local radio rule, one rule the FCC is going to consider as part of this proceeding is the dual network rule. Right now, there's a rule on the books that the networks can't merge. So ABC, CBS, NBC, and Fox can't merge with each other. Oh, my God. Could you imagine? (laughs) <laughs> and that rule has been around for, as uh, Commissioner Carr said this week, since the 1940s. And it's been around since the 1940s for a really important reason. For a long time, NBC owned all of the media outlets in this country. Oh. Um, NBC, RCA. Yeah. yeah. Made the radios NBC, and owned yeah. the networks. <laughs> through oh. NBC Red and Blue. So that rule's been on the books That's for a, a long, long time. But the commission is actually considering whether or not it's still a valid rule. So if you take that to its next level, I don't really um, we can have a long discussion about whether or not NBC and Fox need to merge. But what this is really about is mergers at the next level. So NBC is owned by Comcast. ABC is owned by Disney. Yeah. 
what you're talking about doing by removing the dual network rule is allowing Disney and Comcast to merge. Yeah, which is it's almost unimaginable, or, but I love that you brought that up because it really would it really would wipe out what we think of as our media landscape. It would just just uh, homogenize it up up the chain. Yeah, absolutely. Now, there there's a as bad there's as sort it, of a backdrop. There's a backdrop for this. Because ABC, CBS, NBC, and Fox also own and operate broadcast stations, a merger of those larger companies would require a review of that of the ownership of the lower of the of just the local broadcast stations mm-hmm. that the networks uh, run. So an O and O, so WNBC in New York, for example. Now, why does that matter? Well, this is what pretty much fizzled out a good chunk of the Sinclair deal and became a problem for getting that passed was right, that, which is a bit of good news that I don't think we celebrated here on radio survivor, nor we'll necessarily we still yeah. have to talk about Sinclair. We'll get to it before <laughs> we're done today. But, but I love, that's a, that's an update for 2018. Sinclair, um, was going to be well over the 39% cap. If you merge Disney and, NBC and you merge Comcast and ABC all together into one big company, they're going to be well over the 39% cap Jeez, because they own affiliates in the major markets. ESPN and, and, uh, well, it's not, not ESPN. It's the local broadcast yeah. station. They own a, they own and operate affiliate stations in Los Angeles, New York, and Chicago. Okay. And when you do that, that gets you very quickly to that 39% cap. So, because they're in major stations in major markets that right. reach enormous numbers of people. Right. And they, I mean, it's just a percentage of the national audience. Los Angeles, New York, and Chicago make up a significant portion of the entire national television audience. Right. So why they would get away, do away with the dual network rule is to smooth over that transition. And that's a backdoor way around the 39% cap, which they haven't been able to defeat yet. And is strangely not a portion of the rules that they will actually review this year. And the 39% cap, they can't defeat it because it is actually in law, correct? It was specifically directed by Congress. And the FCC is essentially the congressional pool boy, if you will. You can only do what it's told to do. And the 39% cap, the way it was passed, was an explicit rule handed by Congress. So if the FCC wants to change that rule. They have to get Congre- Congre- Congress to tell them to do that. Hmm. That voice but you just heard. I'm sorry, go ahead. They can get around it by taking sort of one of these backdoor approaches like they're trying to do with the dual network rule. Wow. And that voice you just heard is Professor Christopher Terry of the University of Minnesota. We are talking about media ownership and the FCC and where things lie here in December of 2018. This is Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. My name is Paul Reesmandel. Joining me is Eric Klein. Radio Survivor is supported by Spinatron. Spinatron's web-based system lets non-commercial radio stations publish music playlists on their website. Entry and editing is optimized so that busy DJs can edit and manage their own playlists. Spinatron also connects to major automation systems. Learn more at spinatron.com. That's S-P-I-N-I-T-R-O-N dot com. So, Chris, you're telling us that the FCC is looking at 
getting rid of this rule that prevents your NBC and Fox from merging or your NBC and Disney from merging. And, and that part of it is, is around uh, allowing uh, one company to own more TV stations than, than is currently allowed. I love or at this least headline to, that like, it's entirely possible to have MSNBC merge with Fox news. Well, but so in the background there, <laughs> uh, we, we, we glanced past it, but I, I'd like to, I like to hit this while we still have some time. All right. We, we talked to you earlier in the year about this, uh, opportunity that Sinclair Broadcasting, which owns a lot of local television stations across the country, was going to uh, take over the television stations owned by the Tribune Company. Yeah. And Sinclair made headlines by, by by you know hiring people straight out of the Trump campaign to give commentary. Yeah, that's what kind of got them must the, run got, commentary. Got the attention of people, right? But but that still uh the deal required that the FCC somehow find a way past the 39% rule because the the resulting company, the resulting set of stations would have covered more than 39% of the country would have not been permissible under current rules. And it seemed like 74%. So it required some, some creative math, uh, a very low to the ground uh, mambo. But it seemed Uh, like a done deal. I mean, if you watch these mergers are often allowed, (laughs) you know, you know, over the generation that I've been alive. And then it failed. And then the merger failed. The 2018 Sinclair merger did not go through. Well, it failed for a lot of reasons. Number one is the FCC's inability to get around the the cap. Um, Part of what the FCC was trying to do in the case of Sinclair was consider whether or not um, stations should be counted for half of the percentage of national audience um, that they reach by declaring the UHF discount, which the FCC had gotten rid of. Uh, earlier, it's a holdover uh, from the analog television days right. when you had two you, dials on your TV one for one that went from two to 13, and the other one that went from 14 to 83. Yeah, if you're old enough to remember that dial, you remember that the stations 14 and above were of lower quality, and and, and you no longer and, have that yeah, dial because I, it no longer matters. I was just right. called upon this week to try to describe to someone slightly younger than me what UHF was. And it was it was difficult. It's, it's a weird Al Yankovic movie. Yeah, exactly. It's more channels. It's not public access TV. It's more. It's just cheaper TV. But it no longer matters. Yeah. Well, it actually does matter because many of the digital signals were uh, transferred into the UHF band. Yeah. And had the FCC been able to reinstitute the rule on UHF discount, the Sinclair merger would have still been over the limit, but not by such a dramatic amount. But Sinclair got itself into some trouble during the negotiations with the FCC on the deal. The FCC kept starting and restart, starting and stopping and then restarting the shot clock, which is a 180-day review process. The FCC can pause that at various points when it needs to get more information or it needs a longer period of time. But what happened in Sinclair's case is they said, okay, well, we're over the 39% cap. We're going to ditch a handful of stations to get back below the 39% huh. level. But the problem was, is they weren't really selling or getting rid of those stations. They were spinning them off into sub companies that Sinclair would have still controlled so that they wouldn't have essentially been uh, Sinclair stations in name, but in all, but in practice, they would have been Sinclair stations. So, that got them into a little bit of trouble. Certainly Sinclair's viewpoint, whether you agree with their politics or not, certainly drew them more attention than they certainly wanted 
uh, to have. But Sinclair really tried to push the deal through ahead of the 2018 elections because they wanted to take over those stations and have them firmly in control ahead of the political advertising game that uh, was going to break because out. Because that's also it's, a windfall. It, it's, it's just big a, money for local television yeah. stations. Well, we, we tracked, uh, as part of the projects I work on at the University of Minnesota, we tracked all of the television, cable, and radio advertising for federal and statewide candidates in Minnesota this year, and it was more than $126 million and 656,000 ads uh, across radio, cal- cable, and television. So Sinclair wanted a piece of that pie. You multiply that by 50 states, Sinclair was going to have access to about 74% of the audience. That That's a lot of money. I mean, it's a lot of cash money to cover up the cost of the deal. The deal fizzled out and Tribune stations kind of limped on. But a new suitor has stepped forth in the mm-hmm. last couple of weeks, and that's Nexstar. Nexstar is a company similar to Sinclair, although it doesn't come with Sinclair's political baggage per right. se. Nexstar is a company that has bought up lots of television stations in lots of places, but they focused on smaller markets rather than going after yeah, big people. Yeah, like Decatur, they, Illinois. Right. And so yeah, we're, still, got, we're still talking got, about people losing their jobs and, and TV getting a little more boring. Pro, you know, if, if you know, Paul's rolling his eyes because there's no guarantee that that's what one corporation will do when they buy up a bunch of smaller businesses. But that that's what we've seen in the past, and that's what would um, – I mean that's that's where that's where this impacts. If, even if we don't end up with a must-run Trump commentary on these channels, you still might have less people producing local content. Well, that that certainly would fit the model as we've seen it since the late '90s. Nexstar is kind of an interesting player in this saga, though. They had actually put a bid in for the Tribune stations at the same time the Sinclair merger was in its infancy. Uh, at the time, I don't remember the exact number, but they bid around four and a half billion dollars for the stations, uh, Tribune. Mm-hmm. They're going to pay about six and a half billion now uh, for the same thing they tried to buy a few years ago. Nexstar doesn't come with nearly the same kind of baggage that Sinclair does. Uh, they don't have the sort of political viewpoint that Sinclair you know, wears on its sleeve, so to speak, and has for a very long time. It's not a new thing for Sinclair. They were the ones back in 2004 that ran the documentary against John Kerry, right. for example, Stolen Honor documentary. Sinclair's viewpoint's well-established. Nexstar is, you know, sort of more of a money-making machine, if look you will. Up, look up swift boating on Wikipedia. Yeah. So the uh, the deal as it is, is kind of uh, in flux. The initial proposal is to essentially buy what Sinclair was trying to buy. But Nexstar doesn't want all of the things that come with that deal. Um, Among them, uh, rights to the Chicago Cubs broadcasts, that's a a pretty big thing. And WGN Channel 9, the superstation in Chicago, is on the short list of things the uh, Nexstar folks are willing to put on the table to sell this deal. In legal terms, the deal looks a lot like the Sinclair deal. It's going to push Nexstar way over the 39% cap. Hmm. Um, But it does give Nexstar something it doesn't have currently, and that's access to some bigger places. As we said, Nexstar's business model has been focused on buying up TV stations in smaller markets in the past. 
There's the other thing that's different about this deal in comparison to the Sinclair deal is the places where Tribune has stations are not as common. Sinclair and Tribune had stations in a lot of the same places, I should say. Oh. Nexstar and Tribune do not. A few. And where Nexstar has stations, that Trib has stations, they tended to be the old UHF, the sort of the independence, uh, if you will. And next, I would like to spin some of those off to get some of the juicier properties that Trib's been running as part of the deal. Um, so I you're think saying Nextar basically may play ball much more so, be willing to uh, spin off stations to get underneath the 39% cap in order and, and do so maybe in a much more above the board way? Well, compared to Sinclair, yes. I don't know that it's necessarily above board in many ways. My expectation would be that part of the bar was low. Yeah, well, it certainly was in the case of Sinclair. In the next star case, I think what they might do to try to sweeten the pot a little bit is give up some of the stations that they have, give up the spectrum for the stations that they have to help get them closer to the 39% cap in order to get a waiver out of the FCC. So you mentioned Decatur, Illinois. I, I don't know if Nexar has a station there or not. Channel 17, W-A-N-D. Okay. <laughs> At least I used to when I lived there in, in the central uh, Illinois. But you could give that one up. You know, you're probably not making a ton of money off that station. Give those up for access to some bigger markets. And that would help get them closer to that 39% cap. It would help them get under a couple of the other rules that might apply. And the FCC certainly in the market for some new 5G spectrum right now might sweeten the pot a little bit on the deal. Um, Repurposing TV I, spectrum for uh, wireless internet yeah, and data. Yeah. My, wow. my suspicion on this deal is it runs into the same problem that Sinclair ultimately runs into is that 39% cap can't be changed by the FCC. And I love that. I love, I love that we keep, you keep coming back to that cap because I mean, as as a cynical person watching media get worse and worse, it's it's interesting to note that that e- even though at that time that it was passed uh, twenty some odd years ago, the, that cap has put a lid on some of this activity that would have <laughs> it let loose to dogs but kept a couple in reserve. And and you know, in such a world where we could dream that that number could be lowered, it would have a significant impact on the way media is done in the United States. Well, let, let's talk a little bit more. I, I want to shift the focus from TV to radio because we sort of jumped past it kind of quickly there, Professor Christopher Terry. Um, you mentioned that the proposal being bandied about by the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, for local radio ownership would further lift the limits uh, such that uh, there would be a different cap in only the, the biggest 75 markets, radio markets in the country. And that underneath that, in small towns and, and small cities around the country, the FCC says there would be no loan ownership limit, meaning you could be in a town. It could be Minot, North Dakota. It might even be like Cheyenne, Wyoming, where... One one company, iHeartRadio, Cumulus, Entercom. There's only one person could in your city all of the radio with stations. a job. <laughs> Is this the actual proposal they're floating? Do I understand this correctly? Well, the argument being that competition at the local level is actually costing money 
and that if we just allow people to buy up all the radio stations in town, they'll be able to operate them more cheaply and keep them on the air. One one employee per town. But are, are radio stations radio going station. off the air? I don't see that happening. Well, here I'm in Milwaukee this week. The uh, The stations here have decided that there's only one format, sports talk radio. There are now five sports talk radio stations on the air in the city of Milwaukee. All AM or are they on AM and FM? No, there's there's a couple on FM. There's an AM timeshare. It, it, every, every possible scenario you could imagine includes um, sports talk radio. In fact, one owner actually is operating two competing sports talk radio stations at this point. So – there, it's like I don't Starbucks know that the in station, Seattle's best. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's like having a Starbucks that has a Starbucks inside of it with a Seattle's best kiosk right outside the door. It's uh, it, it's just one of those things, right? I wonder. So I don't know what President Camacho thinks about this, but uh. it's it's one of those things, I suppose. But anyway, the uh, the <laughs> yeah, President Camacho. The uh, the larger point, of course, is that. What we're seeing here is sort of the continuation of what we saw at the end of the 90s. That play you mentioned, Minot, that's, of course, the, the flagship, sort of the poster child for why this was a bad thing in terms of the chemical spill and the clear channel operation that was there. But this would essentially do away with market, market limitations in all places. So in places in rural parts of states, you know, in Wisconsin and Minnesota, there's big rural areas that constitute a single market. You could be buying up radio stations, not at a local level, but at a regional level. Right. And, and, and it would be very easy to come up with a model that like, allows you to run those radio stations very cheaply. A whole swaths of like, even like Florida, but even yeah. I mean, in some places like a state like, like uh, Montana or Wyoming, it could be full consolidation. And, and what you just referenced, Christopher Terry, is this idea that is still so important today that gets often overlooked is that radio is really one of the most reliable ways to get emergency messages out to populations under extreme duress. It works in the fires in California, in the hurricanes in Florida and the flooding in Texas. Um, radio is better at getting people life-saving information than cell networks, than the internet, than than anything. And if there aren't human beings working at these stations, they're a lot less likely to get that life-saving information across the airwaves. We need you need to have people to make it work. Uh, well, that's correct. I mean, we we have lots of examples of this. When I was in radio, I mean, part of the reason I became an FCC watcher was as I was working in radio pre-consolidation and was part of the Hearst merger with Capstar, Capstar with Clearstar, Clearstar with AMFM, and eventually to Clear Channel. I saw, it, I saw it all happen. And I've, I've mentioned this on the show before in the span of six paychecks. I actually worked for five different companies at one point in exactly the same job. It, you know, it happened that quickly. And what we, we lost radio's most important factor, and that's its localism. And, and uh, that's part of what the FCC is trying to assess. But the way this NPRM reads, and I've, I've read my share of them, 1996, 1998, 2000, 2003, 2007. This is 2000, the proposal for rulemaking. Yeah, 2010, 2014, and now 2018. Um, on media ownership alone, I've, I've read them all. The, the rule that the FCC is trying to get away with or trying to do away with here would allow a consolidation on the level that we talked about at the end of the 90s. And, and my understanding is that iHeart, 
Radio, currently still the largest radio owner in the country, and Salem Communications, which is another big player um, that is uh, well aligned with with Republicans uh, in Congress. Uh, they're not so hot on this proposal. Well, Clear Channel has managed to stay alive despite its uh, massive debt load and yeah, poor Clear business. Channel, now known as iHeart, right. It's uh, it's managed to stay afloat somehow. I, I'm not quite sure what dark magic and animal sacrifice they've used to do that, but they they have managed to pull it together and and keep the keep the operation running. the The rules would make other companies scale or allow other companies to scale at the size that would compete with them. So just as they've put out the burning fires that were their operations, they might be looking at facing new competitors that would be able to get into this market a lot cheaper than Clear Channel, iHeartMedia, Salem, Cumulus got into it in back in the 90s, but still have that level of scale to produce content. So, so and they're, they're basically guarding the gates. <laughs> oh, absolutely. They're guarding absolutely. the gates here. Mm. So Professor I mean, Christopher it, Terry... Uh, we're going to have to wrap it up here. So um, I really appreciate you getting us up to date with what's going on at the Federal Communications Commission. So we really do have to pay attention to this media ownership uh, rule, especially those of us who care deeply about radio. So I hope that you will help us do that in the new year in 2019. Well, we'll need to talk uh, about April when the next Prometheus case goes to the Third Circuit. And and, and uh, also when this uh, pr- proposed rulemaking uh, actually hits hits the skids when the uh, the actual text is out there and, and public comments open because that's well, our, the drafts our, available. But there were they mentioned yesterday on Wednesday that there were a few minor changes to yeah, the draft. And, and partly it's because, you know, we we might care the most about community radio and college radio, but these stations don't exist in a vacuum. They work in a media landscape that that feeds off and nourishes each other, even even though commercial radio is sort of a different animal. And if commercial radio is destroyed, essentially, and no longer listenable, that has a big impact yeah, on the are, other stations are, we care there about. There are effects on the entire Not radio Not to mention uh, people who work in radio sometimes make great radio, and the less jobs that there are, the less good radio there is. Absolutely. So, Professor Christopher Terry from the University of Minnesota, thank you so much for joining us here on Radio Survivor. If you want to learn more about anything we've talked about on today's show, and there's a lot. Yeah, links we'll to all the old episodes notes, that we've talked about. Uh, go to radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. This is episode number 172. If you have comments on anything you heard about on the program, please drop us a line at podcast at radiosurvivor.com. This is a listener and reader supported enterprise. To learn more about that, go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. Thank you so much, Eric, for joining me today. Thank you, everyone, for spending another hour with us. Yeah, it was a real pleasure. I'm glad we could we could go deep into the wonk weeds of the FCC once again with Christopher Terry. Thank you so much for, for being here today. Anytime. 